On my desk in my study is a set of bookends. These bookends were given to me by my wife some years ago, and they are really quite nice. I've always liked them. If you held these two bookends together, what they would look like is two halves of a ship with two masts on each side, each having uh, billowing sails to each of them. But if you came into my office, chances are you probably would look around and you would see there are some bookshelves, there's a, a desk, you know, maybe the, there's a record player in the corner, there's books and so forth. But you probably wouldn't quite notice the bookends because the bookends are just kind of there. They're nonchalantly doing what they're supposed to do. They're holding books together on my desk. There is no neon lights on them, nothing really to draw your attention to them. They're just normal bookends. But if you came into my office and instead of books in between those two bookends, there was something odd. Maybe between those two bookends there were ping pong balls. And so you'd come into my office and you'd see that it looks like an office, but then for whatever reason, your eye, something would catch your eye over the corner and you'd see bookends holding together ping pong balls. And so suddenly the, the bookends would gather your attention because they're not doing what they're supposed to do. They're holding ping pong balls together instead of holding books together. And that's because bookends go together. There's a specific job for them. But ping pong balls and bookends have nothing to do with each other. It would look strange. But in Daniel chapter 4 this morning, we have a set of bookends with something strange in the middle. A pair of bookends that look different from what the middle has to say. When you take an aerial perspective of Daniel 4, if you were to take a drone or a helicopter and lift up out and look over Daniel chapter 4, you would see that the first three verses extol the greatness and the magnificence and the sovereignty of God, and then the last several verses extol the greatness and the magnificence and the sovereignty of God. But then in the middle, there would be something that does not belong. In the middle, there would be the pride of a man. And like ping pong balls and bookends, the sovereignty of God and the pride of man have absolutely nothing to do with one another. They do not mix. And they do not mix because pride is something that God distinctively hates. Do you know this? Oftentimes we emphasize the fact that God is loving and He's good and we we love to embellish and talk a lot about that. But we don't often talk about the things that God explicitly hates, one of which certainly is pride. Proverbs chapter 8 says, Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. Or maybe most famously in Proverbs chapter 6, which says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And the first one is haughty or arrogant eyes. And those verses may seem a little nebulous because it's just kind of talking about pride in general. Like pride out in the ether somewhere, not really definable. But God doesn't just hate pride that exists in the world. Maybe the pride of life that John talks about. But he hates the proud. He hates the proud. Proverbs chapter 16 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. 
Or 1 Peter and James both say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So to be proud and to lift yourself up in pride is to actually set yourself up and against God. To be a proud person is to set yourself in opposition to God. So it's almost as if you're in a crowd of people and there's a boxing ring in the middle, but there's this whole crowd around it. And you being lifted up in pride and God is in the ring and you say, I could take him. And suddenly you're in the ring with him. This is the kind of thing that pride does. It lifts us out of the crowd and sets us in those neon lights as something in front of God that he despises and purporting something that he despises. Consider with me our traditional understanding of Satan. How we understand Satan and his own fall. What about him and heaven being a perfectly created being? This beautiful and glorious angel lifted up in pride because of his own beauty and setting himself as a result of his pride in opposition of God. And does he not still remain in opposition to God for these thousands and thousands of years? And so now he's the chief of evil and the chief of evil doers in the world and loving when his own initial pride of sin gets caught on to by the world and so forth. To be proud is to follow after Satan. The first sinner. To be proud is to set yourself in opposition to God. To be proud is to place yourself in a position where you will go unpunished if you never repent. So within our text this morning, King Nebuchadnezzar, in line with the prince of the power of the air, Satan, would exalt himself in pride. In fact, our text is a great example of what I think the Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs in chapter 16 said, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Certainly the pride of Nebuchadnezzar would come before his destruction and his haughty spirit would come before his fall. And just like with anything else, but specifically with pride this morning, the bigger they hire, the harder they will fall. Now if you look at the outline I prepared for you on the back of your bulletin, you'll see... uh, Within those three verses, a proclamation, the first few verses, a proclamation from Nebuchadnezzar concerning the sovereignty of God. And what you need to understand about this textually is that these first few verses, they actually come after this whole event has happened. And so the event of his humiliation and all that he's gone through happens, and then Nebuchadnezzar himself writes the first three verses in Daniel chapter 4. And it's really a letter of proclamation To all of these people groups that you remember in the last chapter, he had called all of these people groups to come and to to bow down to the image that he had created. But now he's writing to these people groups about the Most High being God and how he had been in humility and been placed into a position of humility. But before we get to his humiliation, I want you to notice a couple of the words in verse 2. Look there with me. He says this. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. You remember that? And Nebuchadnezzar praises Daniel, right? He bows down before Daniel and he says, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. So your God, Daniel, is all of this. He has done all of this for you, and now you have done this great thing for me. Thank you, Daniel, and off they go. 
Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go through the fiery flames and then they come out without a singed hair, without any kind of smoke smell on them. And Nebuchadnezzar is baffled. But at the end of the chapter, he still says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Blessed be their God, right? So distancing himself. And then he makes this command that nobody can speak against their God. But again, there's, there's this distance between Nebuchadnezzar and the true God. The only real connection he has with the true God are the people of God that God has placed into his life. So there's distance. This is their God. This is Daniel's God. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. But then verse 2 of chapter 4 right here, you get that subtle inkling in those two words. God has done something for Nebuchadnezzar. God had done something explicitly for Nebuchadnezzar in a way that he hadn't done up until this point. So it wasn't where God's power was seen through Daniel and then he was impacted, or God's power was seen in protecting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and then he was in awe of that. But Nebuchadnezzar would directly be impacted by God himself, and it would bring him to a position of deep humility, which is our second point. We move into Nebuchadnezzar's pride. In verse 3, you see, this is told in the first person. I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is him telling the story. And he begins by saying that he had another dream, which is the second dream he's had recorded in this book. And he has a similar response that he had to the first dream in chapter 2. He's scared, right? He's alarmed. And so he responds in the same kind of a way, still being an unsaved pagan god who, or, or, or man who does not love God. And so, again, he has all of his magicians come, all of these dream interpreters come, and this time he tells them the dream, but they still couldn't figure out what the dream meant. They still couldn't figure it out. And so finally, Daniel comes into the room, and Nebuchadnezzar tells him his dream. He says that in his dream, he had a massive tree that was in the middle of the earth, this height was massive and it was thick. I mean, I've never seen the redwoods, but I've seen pictures of those redwood trees. They're like as wide as this whole entire structure, right? And, and people are just standing next to it. It looks like they're just really, really many people, right? And so there's this massive tree, the redwood of all redwoods, sequoias of all sequoias in the middle of the earth. And he says that this tree was visible to everybody. That it was a beautiful tree. That animals were lying underneath it and they were getting shade from it. There were all these people that were actually feeding off of this tree, that this tree was important very obviously to the entire earth. So, so far so good, right? This is a pretty nice dream. But he continued on to Daniel and he says that as he was having this dream, that a watcher, which would have been an angel, came down and said to chop down the tree. And so the tree was chopped down and this is just terrible for Nebuchadnezzar. Not, not because he's an activist tree hugger. He's not sad because a tree is being chopped down. It's just what this tree is doing for civilization. What this tree is doing for everybody and everything. And this angel says, chop the tree down. So this is a catastrophe definitely uh, for the animals, but then on an economic level in some fashion. But this is where it gets a little weird. Look with me at verse 15. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, amid the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. So it's kind of transitioning somehow. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let this portion be with the beasts and the grass of the field, earth. 
Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. So there's something interesting that goes on from being a a something, it's a tree, but now uh, masculine pronouns are being assigned to this tree. Let him be covered with the dew and let his mind be transferred for animals. Continuing in verse 17. The sentence is by the decree of the waters... The decision by the word of the Holy Ones. To the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And Daniel is dismayed. Because as Daniel is hearing this dream, he knows what God is getting at. God reveals the interpretation. And Daniel looks at his king, who he has probably served to decades by this point, and says, you are the tree. You are going to be cut down. One author said, the divine lumberjack will bring the mighty tree crashing to the ground, removing it from its place of influence and glory. Maybe you've heard the song recorded by Johnny Cash, And Elvis and others have recorded it too. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. And God, the divine lumberjack, was going to cut Nebuchadnezzar down. He had run on for a long time. Like We had seen his arrogance all the way beginning. You just know about this Nebuchadnezzar and all of the things that he has done and the battles that he has won and bringing uh, the people from Judah all the way into his land and all of this stuff that he has done. And we know from history, like I told you before, the incredible walls in the city where they would have chariot races and the hanging gardens he had built for his wife and just a beautiful place, the gates uh, lined with just unbelievable place. Sooner or later, God would cut him down. And Daniel says that Nebuchadnezzar was going to be like a beast in the field and driven from among men. He would eat grass like an ox and he would be wet with dew. But notice again in the end of verse 25, you see similar words to what we have seen already until, so there's going to be a stopping point to this. Until you know the most high rules, the kingdom of men, and that he gives it to whom he will. Let me remind you with Daniel chapter 4, you have your bookends. Your bookends are the sovereignty of God. And then in, the, in, in this dream, you have the ultimate exposure of Nebuchadnezzar's great pride. But then throughout this whole middle section, between these two bookends, you have sprinkled in throughout the middle, in verse 17, in verse 25, and in verse 32, words that highlight that the axe is going to come to Nebuchadnezzar until he says, or until he knows, that the Most High rules. And so these words are a strong indication that a day is going to come when Nebuchadnezzar will know, that he will truly know that the Most High rules. He won't kind of know. He won't simply know that the God of Daniel and his three friends has some pretty nifty tricks up his hands, that he can do some pretty neat things, that he can protect people from fire and all that kind of stuff, or interpret deems. But a day was going to come when Nebuchadnezzar would be given the knowledge that it is the Most High, that it's the Most High that rules, and it's the Most High that rules alone. But before we get to Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation, I want you to notice something that Daniel says to this king, that to me, again, even though he has served him till decades up to this point, it's incredible what you see in verse 
27 in that he gives this terrible news to Nebuchadnezzar, but then he calls him to repent. Look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. What's Daniel doing? He just heard the dream and interpreted the dream. And Daniel sees an opportunity here to say, this is the dream that you had. This is the interpretation. Maybe, just maybe, if you would repent, maybe this will not happen to you. And so break off your sins. Practice righteousness. Practice justice and mercy to the oppressed instead of continuing in your oppressing of them. Daniel sees an opportunity here that there is a time that maybe God will relent of bringing this great calamity upon Nebuchadnezzar. That there is going to be a period of time where God actually holds back a little bit. And that he doesn't just lay the axe right away, but that he holds off for a little while. But like any person who is proud all the way to the inside of their bones, Nebuchadnezzar refuses to look at the Most High in humility. And so he has this dream. He's troubled by it. He's afraid. And here's the interpretation. But he's not brought to repentance through the dream. He had a year to think about it, according to verse 29. He had a year to think about this interpretation. And he doesn't repent. And so let me ask you. Do you know that the Most High rules? I'm not saying you're going to be turned into an animal or an animal-like thing if you don't. But do you know that the Most High rules? Do, Do you know that deep Inside of your soul that the most high rules over and over. We have seen, even in these first few chapters of this book, that that Daniel and his friends are living in a way that they understand that the most high rules. That they get it. They're understanding, they're grappling with it. And Nebuchadnezzar continually shows that he does not live in a way or understand that the most high rules. But for you, professing Christian, here, today... Do you know that the Most High rules? Do you live your life in a way that displays this? Like your actions throughout the week. Not just coming to church on Sunday, but throughout the week. And what you do and how you interact with your family and at work. And all the things that you do. Do you live in a way that displays this? Do you live under the umbrella of knowledge that God is sovereign over everything as the Most High? I think we would all probably say that we struggle with pride. On various levels, we all are going to struggle with pride. And this is a besetting sin. And I wonder, though, if there are any even beyond us, as those who would say pride is sin and pride is wrong, and we don't want to be proud because we love Jesus, and we want to be like Jesus, and we know he wasn't proud. And that's packaged that way. But then the people outside of us and outside of our church and our family and friends that are kind of like Nebuchadnezzar, they might not have a kingdom To walk out and say, look at this great Babylon that I have built. Or look at this great property that I have established. Is more of what they would think. And I wonder if maybe you've tried to give them the gospel. But that their heart is so proud and hard. That any possibility of the gospel being planted in their heart seems to be an impossibility. And I've had conversations with people about unsaved people. And it's like, they'll never come to the Lord. 
You hear that, don't you? And sometimes you feel that. Like, if you have relatives or you have friends and you've known them for decades, and in your heart you just say, there is no way that that person is ever going to come to Christ. I mean, I think of quick, some of you here from my brother-in-law's testimony last week and just all of the things that he had experienced and he had done. Uh, he, he told the account of how he got into drugs as like a 12, 13-year-old kid or an alcohol, and then he ends up becoming a drug dealer, selling pot, and then uh, he ends up selling cocaine, and he ends up uh, driving to Vermont with all of this cocaine. He gets caught with it. He gets thrown in prison. It's just an incredible story. And now, post that, like in a different, almost like a different world now, he loves the Lord. God saved him. And those of you who heard his story, it's a fantastic illustration of God just coming down and breaking a heart that otherwise you would have said, he's never going to be saved. You look at him in prison and say, he will never come to Christ. He's selling cocaine. He will never come to Christ. And then a couple years later, he's a soft-hearted Christian. But is there anybody in your life like that where you would say, God, God can't. God, God, God won't. He, this person is just too hard. And I think, I believe, personally, this is where understanding that God is sovereign over the salvation of sinners is so appropriate. Because in and of ourselves, everybody, we, we are totally depraved. We are following after Satan. We are pursuing our own way. We are living according to the passions of our flesh. But if I can back up and say, yeah, in themselves, they would never trust in Christ. But I know that a God who can save Nebuchadnezzar could save somebody like my friend. God could save somebody like the Apostle Paul. Then he could save somebody like my mother or my sister or whatever it is, right? That if God could break down this man, he can break down any man. It's unreal to think that God is sovereign over this. And to say, yeah, God can cut him down. Notice this man's pride in verse 30. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Again, I'm sure none of us know anybody that know kings or queens, right? Or that are kings or queens. If anybody knows a queen, let me know. But I don't know any personally. But when I consider this kind of, put it in our context, the kinds of things that we struggle with is not walking out and saying, well, look at my hanging gardens. But we might say, look at my garden. We might walk out and say, look at my beautiful home. We might walk out and say, look at this incredible business that I have. We might walk out and say, are these not the great cars and the summer homes and the vacations that I've earned? Are these not the great kids that I have raised? Is this not the great church that I have built? All of this happens. All of this that happens is likely toward the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign in Babylon. And it is true that he had amassed an incredible amount. This man was incredibly wealthy and powerful. Beyond what you see in the world today, essentially. With being able to snap his fingers, tear that person limb from them. You generally don't see that, at least on our side of the world. But this man had won great battles. He had brought the nations to Babylon. Built the gates that we mentioned earlier. Built the most beautiful garden uh, ever seen since Eden. And here he stands looking out over in, in pride. But in our context, we talk about people who die with the most toys winning. 
And so none of you have a city like Babylon where you're lifted up in pride about your city gates. But you are lifted up in pride over the things that you have attained. And we step back at 30. Man, I'm doing, doing pretty good for myself. I have a good job. I have a family, whatever. Or at 60, look at all this stuff that I have built. Or maybe at 70, 80, 90, and, and maybe we're afflicted and we know that we're about to die. But we look back and say, look at all the things that I have amassed. And this process of accumulation and building our kingdoms, we have taken the glory for ourselves. And we have not acknowledged that the Most High was the one who extended these things to us. But that we gave them to ourselves. And so to walk out and look at all he has blessed us with and to think of how well we have done for ourselves is to dishonor the one who gave you the brain waves to even have that thought. And as these kinds of thoughts are coming to Nebuchadnezzar's head, the word of the Lord comes to him. Look at verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, until you know, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate the grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. And so the proud beast that he was in his heart became reflected in who he was physically. Claws and long hair soaked from the dew of the night and the morning. And we do see this reflected in the lives of those who are truly proud. Again, they might not be given wolf-like qualities, right? But they are wolf-like in the way that they are and in their pride. Like Nebuchadnezzar, arrogant people often lose years of their lives because of how proud they are. Because they refuse to repent of it. They refuse to repent like Daniel called him to. They refuse to repent before God. And in order to get their attention, if God is going to save them, God levies a strong hammer against them. I mean, again, if you analyze the relationships or even analyze yourself before you came to Christ, was there not a great humbling? Was there not a great breaking where you came and said, I am not going to get into heaven by the things I've attained or the things that I've done. It is only going to be according to mercy. And that has to break us. So often those who refuse to be broken and don't break before God and recognize that the Most High rules, they essentially lose their own sanity because of how centralized they are to their own universe. To the point where it becomes a sheer impossibility for them to live a life where they are not at the center like Nebuchadnezzar, and then they lose everything that actually matters. My friends, maybe in our own country and in our own churches and our own families more than most, we are a people who have lost our minds and have lost our sense because we are right at the center of the universe and everything has to be centralized around us. And that we are the center of our churches and we are the center of our country and we are the center of our families and what matters most is what I want to do. 
and who I want to be. So we think of slogans like grab life by the horns, right? Or just do it, or be all you can be. They're all slogans attesting to what's within you and to what you can do, that you're the captain of your own fate. But when the entire testimony of the Bible says that God is the captain of the ship of the universe, that there is nothing outside of His control, that He's the one who controls the seas that our ships sail on, and He controls the winds that blows our sails, and He controls the rain that falls on us, He controls absolutely everything about our lives. And whether the proud ever are humble to the point of recognizing it, the fact all Always remains. So whether you acknowledge this truth or whether you don't acknowledge this truth doesn't matter. The truth is that the Most High rules. You don't have to acknowledge that. But that doesn't make it not true. Doesn't make it not true. Sorry. But look at verse 34. Nebuchadnezzar learns this lesson the hard way. Verse 34. At the end of the day is I, Nebuchadnezzar, Lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. I praised Him and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? The closing. Bookend. But did you see it? Did you see a couple more words that give us an idea of where Nebuchadnezzar's heart now is as opposed to where it was before in verse 2 when he said that God had done something for him? But then in verse 34, I lifted my eyes to heaven. So following his humiliation, Nebuchadnezzar's eyes are lifted from his kingdom, lifted from the gates, lifted from the hanging gardens, lifted from his great walls and his temples and everything he had built. They're lifted from all of that to heaven. And this is true of anybody who has been truly humble, that they will lift their eyes to heaven. One author says, true humility recognizes that not only am I nothing, but also that God is everything. So it's not like just self-deprecation. I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. It's acknowledging, yeah, I am nothing. But God is absolutely everything. And Nebuchadnezzar had learned that God is everything. You remember his statue from last week, totally made of gold, symbolizing that Babylon would be a forever kingdom. But in thir- verse 34, he confesses that it's God's kingdom that is from generation it's to generation. It's God's kingdom that's going to last forever. And so, brothers and sisters, be encouraged by this, that nobody struts into the kingdom of God. Nobody struts into the kingdom of God. The Bible says that the way is narrow, right, that leads to eternal life, and the way is broad that leads to damnation. And the way to eternal life is far too narrow narrow to carry a big ego on it. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Nobody comes before God who hasn't been humbled by Him first. In fact, when you think about what we mentioned some time ago and the fact that if you are proud, that you are actively lifting up yourself in opposition to God. But Isaiah chapter 66 verse 2 says, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
And so the proud person gets God's attention and stands in opposition to him. The humble person gets God's attention and God looks at them. When Nebuchadnezzar looked at himself and what he had amassed, he was proud. But when he looked to God, he was made low. And a proper perspective of God as the Most High is always going to put us into a position of deep humility. But friends, although I think Nebuchadnezzar was probably forever impacted by this, and I think there's a real chance someday you get to glory, you see Jesus, and you look over, and it's Nebuchadnezzar standing by the throne of Christ. I think that would be absolutely incredible to see. He is certainly not the ultimate or greatest or clearest example of humility, even though he was greatly humbled. He would learn that the Most High ruled, but the one thing Nebuchadnezzar could not have conceived was that the Most High God would come to this earth and that he would establish his kingdom on the earth. Would you, in closing, just turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, this great pagan king, points us in some fashion to the greatest king, doesn't he? In that Nebuchadnezzar walked around his beautiful gardens and walls and city and declared himself to be the wonderful creator of all of it. Yet there was another king, King Jesus, who actually had the ability to come to this earth and look around and strut around and say, look at all this that I have built, that everything was created by me and for me. But do you ever see throughout the Gospels, do you ever see any arrogance in Jesus? Not at all. And he had created it all. Instead, you see him selflessly preach and teach. You see him heal. You see him as a servant handing out bread and fish to thousands. You see him in what is possibly just a most staggering uh, example of humility in that he ties up his clothes, gets on his hands and knees, and washes his disciples' dirty feet. The actual majestic creator of all things, bending down to do the job of a slave. The perfect humility of Jesus. Look in verse In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Lord of everything. The Lord over a thousand Babylons. The Lord over all creation humbled himself and laid his life down on a cross. And Christian, if the cross is where your eyes are, like Nebuchadnezzar when he lifts his eyes to God, you lift your eyes to the cross. If the cross is where your eyes are truly set, you will find it hard to be proud for very long. To look upon him who came to this earth. He didn't count the quality with God a thing to be grasped. But he took upon the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself to die. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, there is only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. And so this is why, this is the message that we bring to the nations. This is why we go and we preach every single week here. We seek to preach the cross. This is why we want to support 
more church plants. This is why we want to support missionaries around the globe. Because we want to see the cross of Christ preached. Because we know that when Jesus is lifted up and we see the cross and others look and they see the cross, they will not look at the cross and, 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 and be arrogant about it. They will look at the cross and they will be humiliated that it was their sin that put Jesus there. And that they needed somebody to come and do such a drastic thing for their, to secure their eternal life. When we survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, our richest gain, we count it as loss and pour contempt on all our pride. Look to the cross. It is there where you will find the humility that you need and the example that you need and the truth that you need to suppress and eradicate the pride from your life. Let's pray. Lord, pride is a deep struggle for so many of us. I confess to the pride in my own heart. It is there. And the pride that can be within churches and strong in churches and the pride that can be strong in towns and in states. But this is why we need the cross. That when we look at the cross and we see the work of God, as Nebuchadnezzar said, as for me, as for us, it is life-changing. Father, I pray that as we preach the cross, Jesus and him crucified, buried, risen, and coming again, Lord, I pray that many eyes will look, to look to the gospel, to be humbled, that pride would be eradicated from our hearts.